Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Whether you're actually in our church today or you're coming to us from SoundCloud or on podcast, did you know that by doing so, you are making God pleased? Whenever we take out of our own time, because God gives us our lives to do with whatever we want, you understand? And then whenever we do something to worship Him or take time out of our day to look toward Him or, or seek Him or listen yeah. for Him, then what happens is he looks at that and he goes, oh, that's awesome. I love it when people look for me. I love it. So it makes God pleased that you've taken time out of your day to, turn, to tune in to Gospel Saving Church and to hear his word today. If this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed, and I've come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church and our weekly broadcast of truth from God's word. All right, guys, if you want to join me in a word of prayer, please, I'd surely appreciate it. And let's ask God to bless our hearts and get them ready for his seed. Not my seed, but God's seed that he wants to sow on our hearts. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said the, the gospel that kingdom heavens like, the, like like a man goes out and sows seed. And each of our hearts is like a little soil. It's like a little plot of ground. And so let's ask God to bless our hearts and our on our soil so that we can receive the seed that Jesus is going to sow on it today. And so that God could bear good fruit on our hearts with it. Hopefully, <laughs> I hope and we'll pray that he does. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for the message that uh, you're about to give, Lord, to us all. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your wisdom that you've given me all week long, Lord God, to put this together, Lord. Another, not mine, Lord, but another masterpiece from you, Lord God, because that's how I look at these sermons that you give me, Lord God. They're like little, each one of them is like a little masterpiece, Lord, that comes from heaven, Lord, from you, out of your word, because it's not about me, it's about you, Jesus. And so I pray, as I just said earlier, Lord, I pray, Lord, our hearts, the soil that they are, Lord, I pray that the seed that you sow on our hearts today would bear good fruit, Lord God, 30 and 60 and 100 fold good fruit, Lord God, for your kingdom, Lord God, not for my kingdom or for my congregation's kingdom, or, but Lord, for your kingdom, Lord, that we would do works worthy of the calling of which we were called, Lord. Not so that we can be saved, Lord. That's heresy. But, Lord, so that you would be glorified and that people would funnel into your kingdom, Lord God. For all eyes should be on you. Make my mouth preach correctly today, Lord God. Help the things which I say, Lord God, to impact the people's hearts and ears and minds that are listening to the point of if they're not yours, Lord, that they would repent and they would come to you. And if they are yours, that they would have stronger faith in you and walk with you closer. We thank you, Lord God. And I ask all these things and I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 29 through 41 today. I know it's a lot of verses, but we'll get through them, trust me. Uh, but I won't read them or teach them till after my thoughts from last week's message, Peter's first sermon, part three. Last week, we covered a third section of Peter's first sermon. Again, as I've told you last week, uh, I only am going on whatever God's telling me to teach. I'm not picking any section of certain verses. This week, I actually had less planned to teach, and God gave me more. So anyway, in the last section, Peter covered David's prophetic Psalm 16, where he literally had either a vision or a dream of 
Number one, God's position with him. And so every saved and faithful child of God today, which would be in Jesus Christ. And number two, he saw the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that David and all of God's faithful servants would be able to inherit eternal life. For as we just talked about in communion, as if Christ would have not come, no way would have been open for us unto the glorious heaven. And that position of God to his true children was right next to us so that we don't have to be shaken. Because remember, God's got it. For yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil because you are with me, David writes. So Christians, be still, trust his plans, even if you don't understand. This is what the thrust was on last week. And in those two things that David taught us about in this vision or dream that he had of God and Christ, I taught you that are saved that God takes care of his kids, both 100% in this life and 100% in the next life as well. Isn't God Almighty of our Bible, not just any God of your creation now, the God Almighty of Scripture, isn't he so good? Isn't he so awesome? And I preached and I preached and I preached to you you that are redeemed, to just totally trust in God and relax. Sit back and enjoy the ride. And I gave you the really neat analogy of the God saying that I called it, right? Remember, the, our problem should be like a cup of water that we'd spill at an outdoor picnic on a, on a field of open grass. That's how tiny that our problems should be. And, and I also told you that worry was a slap in the face to God. And that when you make your problems big, you make God teeny tiny. And that was all because God was and is with us at our sides always, Christians. And all that truth came from David's vision and his dream. But now, here's something to think about. And and I'll discuss it really quick, but here's something to think about. That promise that God gave David was from the Old Testament, after all. And you know that God has changed some things in the New Testament. He has. I mean, the whole Old Covenant, New Covenant. So has God changed his promise here, what he gave with David? I mean, he could have, right? He could have. I mean, and I mean, we just never, we just can't know until we do what? We look toward the word of truth. So now we know that Christians, or those that love God, are under the New Covenant, right? And we're supposed to obey and listen to Jesus Christ now, right? Not really God anymore, but God through Christ. This is what Jesus said. And what promises did Jesus give us in the New Testament to those that were faithful to God, to those that love God, to those that are His? Or to those, I should say, even that those that are even seeking Him, that they could have that promise. Well, you may have heard about a little thing called the Sermon of the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me. And when I say little, I joke because it's three full chapters of Jesus teaching one sermon. That's a pretty long sermon. Anyway, in one part of this sermon, Jesus is talking to his followers along with anyone that's seeking him. And he says this about, that, about a certain promise that God gives his children in the New Testament. Let, let's see if it coincides with what God told David from the Old Testament. Matthew 6, 25-34. He says this, Therefore I say to you, do not worry. I want you to do something with me. Count the worries. Or count the references to worry. And and think of them, are they in a good connotation or a bad 
connotation. I want you to think of that. Therefore, I say to you, Jesus, do not worry. That's number one about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So don't worry about anything. Don't worry about any, any provisional aspect of your life at all. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That's a rebuke, by the way. Are you, child of God, you sit there and you worry, but are you not worth more than a bird of the air. Well, of course you are. That's a rebuke. Jesus was, <laughs> Jesus was given a rebuke there. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Another rebuke. Hey, when you worry, can you make yourself any taller? Can you make yourself any skinnier by worrying? Can you improve your job situation by worrying? Absolutely not would be the answer to all of those. That's the second rebuke. So why do you worry? Second time, worry about clothing. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you that even Solomon, the most wealthy and wise man that the world's ever known, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Another rebuke. That's two negative connotations on worry and three rebukes for worrying. Jesus is pretty serious that God's going to take care of his children. Therefore, 31, do not worry. That's the third worry. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. He's not talking Gentiles. He's talking about people that don't love God. All these things the Gentiles, those that don't love God, they seek. They, they seek all these things that they just want, 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 want. The eyes of man are never satisfied. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousnesses, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry, that's four, about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry, five, about its own things sufficient for the days, its own trouble. He mentions worry five times. And they're all in negative connotation. And he says, he rebukes us three times for worrying. Hey, hasn't God taken care of the birds? You're his child. Isn't he more going to take care of you than a bird? And the bird never stores up. Birds don't have bank accounts. Birds don't have cars. Birds don't have TVs. Birds don't worry if their cars break down. Birds don't worry if they lose their job. Birds just go about their day, love God, and live. And this is what Jesus is saying. So has the promise of God to David from the Old Testament changed according to the New Testament? Not at all. In fact, I'd say that Jesus confirmed it and even reaffirmed it and even went above and beyond what God ever said in the Old Testament that how he would take care of his children. Not that God didn't back then. I'm just saying that Jesus, what he says here, seems to go above and beyond how God even said that he would take care of his children back in the Old Testament. Now really, anyone listening, do you think that after Jesus Christ said all these things about how God is going to take care of you who put your life, put your trust in him and make him first, he is going to make good on his word. God's not a liar like people. You can trust him. His word never fails. The only time you have to worry for real is if you don't put God first in your life. If Jesus is not 
your Lord. If you're not born again and you're not even seeking kind of on the way there. Because then you should worry. Then you should be the most worry-sick person in the whole world. Because there's nothing guaranteed and nothing promised to you. Not even eternal life. So child of God, when problems come, here's what you should do. Rebuke them in Jesus Christ's name and then pray. Don't just adjust your crown and thank God for his favor, but pray and ask God Almighty and Jesus Christ for their help so they get the glory. Surrender that problem to your big God and then tell your literal self, because we are supposed to talk to ourselves. Hey, self, shut your mouth, right? But tell yourself, because I have to do that to myself sometimes when when my brain's like going all these crazy things. Hey, brain, shut up. I don't want to hear you no more. Hey, that's not God. Hey, shut up. Let's think about something about God. So then here with worry, tell your literal self, God's got this problem. Don't worry. Stop worrying. Dude, sit back and relax. And you know what? Let's just wait and see how God's going to take care of us. Let's wait and see how God's going to take care of what we think is a big problem, but really to him, it's just a teeny tiny one. Let's just sit back and relax and tell yourself these things and then surrender it to God. God, I know you got this. Lord, I know you got this. I know I'm yours. I love you. I've decided to follow your son. I live for you. I know you got this, Lord. And give him all the glory. And then when he does take care of the problem, make sure you testify to others how God did it for you so that he really gets the glory. All right. right, Anyway, let's get on to our new sermon. I could probably preach a whole nother week on that, so I don't want to get into that. We're going to finish Peter's first sermon today, part four. This is our last part. We're going to read Acts 2, 29 through 41, and we're going to see what Peter has to say to us in the last part of the section we'll cover for his sermon. Men and brethren, Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says it himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 
So Peter gets done telling them of David's vision or dream of God Almighty and his position towards those whom put God first in their lives. Wow, what a vision that must have been, right? And now he has some things to say about the faithful servant of God, David, and the Christ, the same one that he saw in his vision. Verse 29 says again, this is what he says about David first. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter says to them, listen up, my fellow countrymen. I'd like to speak to you freely or or really openly. Hey, let me just say anything I want to say, everything I want to say about our once great King David. Hey, David's dead, and you all well know his tomb is right here amongst us right now. At the time Peter preached this sermon, David had been dead for about 800 to 1,000 years, and his grave or his tomb was still right amongst them that very day that Peter preached this you know, sermon on the day of Pentecost. But if you think that's cool, just an aside really quick, did you know that the tomb of David is still in Israel to this very day? To this very day... His tomb is housed in a thousand-year-old building on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. I think that that's cool. David was dead in Peter's day, 800 to 1,000 years. Today, David's almost been dead almost 3,000 years, or about 3,000 years, and they still have his tomb there in Jerusalem on on that Mount Zion to this very day. Why did Peter tell them this? He's driving towards a deeper point. Look at verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So he tells him first, hey, remember guys, telling you all these things that you know, he has a method to his madness. I'm telling you all these things that you know, hey, David's dead, we got his tomb. Then he tells him now, hey, remember that promise that God gave to David? Remember that promise that, God told David that the fruit of his body, that from the fruit of his body would come the Christ. Remember that? Uh, Peter told them about one of God's most amazing promises that God gave ever any, to ever anybody ever in the whole world. Peter said God was going to raise up from David's body according to his flesh. That means in his lineage. So David had a son, and then his son had a son, and then his son had a son, and his son had a son. And then from that David's body in his physical lineage, God was going to raise up the Christ, the Messiah, Israel's great savior. Wow. How awesome is that? He's referring to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 12. God says this to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, that's an old Testament term for when you're dead, when you're, when you die, I'm going to set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this was a prophetical psalm. God told David, from your seed, from your body, is going to come the Savior of the whole world. You see, it came at a time, God gave David this this awesome promise when David wanted to build the temple of God, the temple of God. What we call it Solomon's temple now, Solomon's great, the greatest temple ever built, Solomon's temple, but David never got to build that temple. As David kind of had it on his heart, he went to prophet, Dave, or prophet Nathan, and Nathan said, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Nathan goes home, goes to bed. God says, hey, man, get up. Go tell that dude I love him. Hey, he's great, but you know what? I don't want him to build the temple. Instead, I'm just going to do a little thing for him like, 
make the Messiah come from his lineage. Wow, that's that's a great that's that's a, that's a great thing I'd say. Uh, where is Peter going with this? Just hanging there. He's building up. Look at verse thirty-one. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He basically just quickly summarizes for us everything David told us in his vision, or, or in the verses twenty-five through twenty-eight that we read last week. Now concerning this promise of God to David, in David's vision, he saw that the promised one was going to be his own kinsman, right? That's what I just told you guys. It was going to come, that the Messiah was going to come from David's own body. But a really neat facet that we haven't talked about uh, to this point is, is, that I haven't pointed out is this. David actually saw, listen, his great, 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 and do that 28 times removed grandson as the Christ, as resurrecting from the dead, the one that came from his body. We received that information from the gospel of Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Christ. Just think, Christ was born about almost a thousand years of David's lineage. So all the kids that could have been born in almost a thousand years and the Christ came from that, and David saw his great-great-great-great-great-great-28th-removed-grandson rise from the dead. He actually saw Jesus Christ, and he saw that it was going to be one of his descendants, one of his 28th-removed, well, well, his 28th-removed grandson. I just think that's awesome. Uh, and this is what Peter is reminding his Jewish audience of here. And they were all aware that the Christ would be the great, 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 great grandson of David. But they just didn't know which great, great grandson of David that it would really be. Next, Peter points out another fact that they heard, but they did not accept. Read verse 32. This Jesus, the, the one that he's been describing kind of in a roundabout way, God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Peter says, the man I'm talking to you about, this Christ, this Messiah, this, this great, great grandson, 28 times removed of David, according to his flesh, that is, is no other than Jesus, the one you call Jesus of Nazareth. And the one that we, all of us, all of us in this upper room, have all witnessed that he has resurrected and that he is still alive. Peter just gave them the 120 personal first-hand witness testimonies of Christ's resurrection that every one of those people in that second-floor apartment witnessed. Isn't that awesome? And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There's no greater testimony. There's no greater witness of an event than a what? A first-hand witness account of a testimony. There's, there's no greater testimony in a court of law that holds up. If you come into a court of law, actually, they'll, they'll examine you. And if you're not the first-hand witness, they just dismiss you. Because all I heard from... Oh, I'm sorry. See ya. No, oh, you didn't... Oh, you heard it firsthand. Oh, you saw the shooting? Oh, you saw the accident? I mean, you, you weren't turning... You, you actually saw, Yeah, oh, come on in. Come on in. And Peter just gave him the 120 person, personal first-hand witness of Christ's resurrection of David's great, great, 28 removed grandson rising from the dead. And that's what every one of those disciples in that upper second floor apartment had going for them. Next, Peter tells them a little something more about Jesus the Christ. 
Look at verse 33. Therefore, him being exalted to the right hand of God, this was Jesus Christ's reward for him conquering and overcoming sin and death by his sinless life, death, and resurrection from the dead. And having him, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus was getting baptized by John the Baptist? Remember that? The Holy Spirit descended upon him and sat on him like a dove. And this is what, this is what Peter is referencing here. And he says this, he goes on to say, He, this Jesus Christ, poured out this which you now see and hear. This same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus received, he just gave to us. And why? We already talked about this in previous sermons. So that the disciples could be filled with the Holy Spirit, power of God to do the work that God called them to do. Remember, this, what Peter's describing here is the very sound of this outpouring that made them stop, come together, and look up to this second floor apartment in the first place. It's what God used as his fishing technique. If you guys remember that a few weeks back, I gave you that analogy. Now, of course, what happened to Christ when he ascended was prophesied of as well. Look at verses 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Remember what I told you about in the Old Testament Nobody went to heaven. Well, if David, as Peter says here, didn't go to heaven when he died, what other faithful servant of God was as faithful as David in the Old Testament? Not even one. Although David did some, he committed some sins, there was not one man that had said about him in the Old Testament that God said, he is a man after my own heart. There was no one. In the Old Testament, more faithful than David. And Peter just said here, remember, that David did not ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, he said this now. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, where is God? God is in heaven only. So we know Jesus Christ went to heaven. He was the first one to ascend into heaven to make the way for everybody else. I'm not going to go all on that today, but we just see that in this scripture here. But he says himself, David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This was foretold none other than by David in Psalm 110. I told you David had some pretty powerful visions and dreams and prophecies, didn't I? Well, of course, the Christ, Jesus himself, said the same thing to the high priest during his fake trial. The high priest asked, remember, when they were having this mock trial, this fake trial, they had already found him guilty. The trial was just kind of like a, you know, formality. They just, you know, had to have something that a few of them saw. And so remember Christ told the high priest when he asked him, he said, are you the Christ? And he said, I am, Mark's 14, 62, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. Where is Jesus now? At the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. And of course, he'll only leave that right hand when he returns to both A, rapture his church, and B, judge the world. And of course, with both David prophesying of this in the Old Testament and Christ confirming it in the New Testament, it is something that God has sadly said in his heart that he has to do, and it will come to pass 100%. This will happen when God puts an end to everything, uh, Judgment Day, and at this time he will bring his children those of his faithful, those like David of the Old Testament, he'll bring us a new heavens and a new earth when he destroys everything that we know and see today. These events and time period will both be, one, very exciting and awesome for God's spiritual children, and two, a very scary and terrible time for those whom are willfully making themselves enemies of God by rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. 
getting back to Peter's sermon, because I could make that one in a whole other sermon there. Peter hits a climax in this next verse. Look at what he says, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. You know, whenever you see that in Scripture, Peter is making an emphatic point. Let all the house of know, I really want you guys to listen to this. Hey, assuredly, hey, a for sure thing, listen up, please. Know for sure, the elect of God, the physical descendants of Abraham, God's chosen Jewish elect people, listen up, that God has made this Jesus, the one I've been describing to you, the one I've been describing, David's great, great, great 28 removed grandson of the flesh, that you call Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, him, the one that you call him and I call Jesus the Christ, whom you crucified, pointing it out to the end that they crucified him, the man who you put to death by telling Pilate to kill him. God has made this man, the one all of you despised and hated, I will add, both Lord and Christ. This is so powerful. Peter is filled with God's word here, and he's preaching his heart out to these people, the same ones that were literally 100% guilty of crucifying Christ. And he wants them to know 100% what they've done and whom they have murdered. And he wants them to take full ownership of what they've done. Full ownership. He doesn't want them to get away one minute thinking that it wasn't their fault. And they, he wants them to realize that they're sinners. And their sin has separated them from God. They don't just, they didn't just have anyone, by the way, brutally murdered, which is bad enough. I mean, you know, really having anybody brutally murdered is, is just, it's terrible. It really it deserves a death penalty, I think, in my own opinion. No, but they didn't just have anybody murdered, ladies and gentlemen. They murdered the king of glory himself. And Peter wasn't going to let them get away without knowing this and pounding it into their hearts as this is the second time he reminded them and that they were the ones that murdered Jesus. The sermon was and is so divinely powerful. What is their response to what Peter said? Do they get what he's saying to them? What God is saying to them through Peter's very own mouth. Do they get it? Look at verse 37. Yes, hallelujah. Now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's words, you were the one that crucified him the second time. This Jesus God is raised from the dead. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? I could just see it there. Oh my gosh, what have we done? Oh no, Peter. Guys, well, oh no, what shall we do? Their response was the exact one that God longs for everyone to have whom he's reaching out to and he's trying to save. They couldn't have responded in a better way. They realized that they were guilty and condemned in God's eyes. They realized that they were not all right in God's eyes. They realized that when they died, they were going to stand before God having murdered his son, the king of glory, the Christ, the ones that they had waited for and waited for their whole lives as these were the devout Jews, remember. These weren't just the, the nominal Jews. These were the devout Jews. And they responded with their hearts humble, so able to be cut 
or touched by God and asking what they needed to do to rectify their condemnation before their creator. This is so powerful. And again, God's desire response for everyone who is lost and in need of salvation. Look at Peter's advice. How does Peter tell them to, let's say the old phrase, get right with God, right? How does Peter tell them? Look at verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did Peter tell them? What does Peter say? What is Peter's line? What shall we do to be saved? Peter says, well, just pray this prayer with me, brethren, and just say the Lord, I repent. That's not what he said at all, is it? I'm sorry. That's Joel Osteen's church. I, I apologize. That's not the Bible. That's what Joel says we need to do to be saved, which is not what the Bible says. Peter says, repent. Repent. This prayer of salvation stuff, ladies and gentlemen, is Satan-filled. It's a demonic doctrine and teaching that leads people to a false sense of salvation and an eternity in hell. No, Peter doesn't tell them to pray some magical prayer asking Jesus to come into their hearts. That's man-made. He tells them to straight up repent and be baptized. Where is this stuff in the church today? Where is this stuff taught in God's church today? I've been to some super godly churches, and at the end, almost every pastor would just pray this prayer and repeat after me, Lord Jesus, I repent. That is not in God's word. It's here in Gospel Saving Church, not to many others, but it's here. Breaking down what Peter said for salvation, because these guys were enemies of God, same as anybody would be if they're lost. What did Peter tell them to do to be saved? He says, first off, he doesn't add any work to it. He says, repent. What is repentance? The Bible describes repentance. The word in the Greek means to have a heart change toward God. Realizing God is right and I'm wrong. What is that called in our modern vernacular? It's called surrender. It's called bowing down, putting yourself lower than God. Before you are saved, when you're an enemy of God, you hold yourself either equal or higher to God as you obey yourself and yourself only. When you repent, you place yourself, would you have yourself above or equal to God? You place yourself underneath God. You put God higher than yourself and you under God and you make a decision to start listening to God. You make a decision to start following God's words. You haven't followed them yet. This is just an inner heart of man decision that you're making. You haven't done any work. It's a, it's a personal decision that you've made. I'm not going to live this way anymore. I want need Jesus. Okay, that's what true repentance really is. Then after surrender, when we break down whatever else Peter said, he said, be baptized. Well, this would be baptism in water. This was not to help with their salvation. This was no work that could help with your salvation, but it was to be baptized. Why? As a fruit of the good work that just happened in your heart. When you turn on the faucet of water, 
You didn't, although you turned it on, the water has to come out. When you're truly saved, when you're truly born again, when you truly repent, out of you, it's like God just turned on that handle, should flow this stuff, these works, these actions should come after true repentance. The baptism that Peter preaches on here is not do this and this and then you'll be saved. Do this. Surrender to Jesus Christ. And then show us that you really did by letting those good works flow from you. Now, I'll come back to this. I don't want to, it's not the end of our sermon. We still got a few more verses left. That's it's going to be our big finale. But look who this salvation is for. Look who this salvation, look who this repentance is for. Look at verse 39. He says, for the promise is to you and your children. So he said, all the Jews, all those who are Jewish lineage of Abraham, the, hey, the promise of salvation is going to be offered to all of you. But look what he says here. He says this here in a prophetic sense. And to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter didn't even know it yet. The Jews didn't even know it yet, but God was calling the Gentiles too. Had Peter and the disciples really been biblical scholars, they would have known that because God spoke that through Isaiah and Jeremiah. But the fishermen, the tax collectors, they weren't biblical scholars of their days. Okay, They were the grunt workmen. They were the trash collectors of their day. And that's who Jesus called. So Peter didn't know that. But here, by God's wisdom, Peter preaches on, hey, this salvation's for you first, as we see in the New Testament in the same book of Acts, where the disciples say, hey, the salvation is to the Jews. They only go to the Jews. But then they realize in a little bit, we're going to read about it, how, oh, wait a minute, God's starting to save Gentiles? Hey, hey, wait. But Peter didn't know it here. So it was all prophetical, which I think is awesome. Look, Look at our last two verses of the day. Look what he says. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. We don't have all the words that Peter preached here recorded, because we see here, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, which means that he said more things than we have in Scripture here. But since we don't have them all, going off of what he did say, and off of what I could just think of goes along with that, uh, we could see that he probably said some things like this. He gave the gospel, told them about Jesus Christ, told them that they were sinners, told them that they were in need, that they realized they were in need. Hey, what shall we do? He says, repent, surrender, follow Christ, start, start doing the works. And then I, I, I see this. Come on, my fellow countrymen, what are you waiting for? Turn to Christ Jesus today, please, and be saved from your sins. You know, you may not get it tomorrow. You know, tomorrow's not promised anybody. Tomorrow's not promised to anybody. He could have said, repent, don't perish. Take advantage of God's mercy here. God's waiting for you. Don't keep him. Did his words of testimony and exhortation work to win these lost souls to the Lord Jesus Christ this day? Our last verse, then those who, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Did it work? Did Peter's exhortation work? Absolutely. 
They knew they were receiving a chance that they might never get again. And masses of them, we don't read every one of them, masses of them turn to Christ that day and they get saved. Then they were baptized as an outward show of their commitment to Christ. Not a seal of their salvation, as I said, for no good work nobody is saved. But to bear a good fruit that showed that their repentance was really legitimate. For as I said, salvation comes by no work. Salvation is simply a surrender to Jesus Christ to make Him your Lord. And a decision to put Him in control of your life and to put Him above you and below your and, and you below him and to start deciding to make a choice in your life to serve him and worship him think of repentance like this think of repentance as a marriage commitment we can we can fathom that right our, our human brains can't maybe fathom how does a how does a commitment a, a, a repentance surrender commitment to god work how, i don't understand how's that but we can visualize a marriage commitment right if you're married, you, you remember that day when, you, when your husband or your, you know, your wife, whoever proposed you, said, you know, will, will you marry me? And you went, yes, or you went, no. Well, you, if you said yes, you made a decision that day. You knew what you were doing. You knew, I'm going to be his wife. He's, we're going to be joined together. We're going to stop seeing other people. We're going to stop doing our own thing. We're going to do things together now. We're going to be joined together. I mean, I could just hear the priest, right? These two shall become one, right? That's literally what happens when you get married. You're as one. You're as one in God's eyes. You're as one, something supernatural happens. We can see that. This repentance and surrender is like a marriage commitment to God and Jesus Christ, though. This is a, hey, I'm done being single. I'm done living for myself. I'm Boy, I, I don't want to be equal to God no more. I'm not equal to God anymore. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I'm tired of my way. This is a decision. His way for me now, not mine. Me and God together as me as the spouse and him as my husband. This is what a real repentance really means. Or, or one more way, my favorite way to think about repentance Your heart of hearts is like an impenetrable fortress. So impenetrable. Think about this bubble that no one, not even God, can get into. For the only door handle, the only release switch for this little bubble you're in is on the inside. And the only way for anyone to come in, especially God, is if you willfully turn that handle and pop that seal from the inside. And then that's not enough for God, though. Because, you know, you may just kind of be looking, but you got to, you wave the white flag of surrender. God, I know this is my bubble, but you know what? (laughs) I'm opening the door for you and I want you to come in now. I want you to make it your bubble. And and I just want to be your servant in this bubble. Sure, Christ will knock on that door of your fortress and ask to be let in, but unless you open it to him willfully and unconditionally in surrender, he will not force his way in. Notice what Christ says here in Matthew 10, 39. He who finds his life, that he's talking about the eternal life that God promises to all people, will lose it. Talk about the losing of the temporary earthly control of his or her life. But look at what he says. He who finds his life. Notice that the person is the one that decided to lose their life 
willfully on their own. Not constrained, not forced, not pushed, not hassled, not harassed. And he goes on, he who loses his life or control of their earthly lives, right? It's something they're doing on their own for my sake. This is because of him now. We'll find it speaking about eternal life. The eternal life that God offers, not guaranteed, but he offers to all people. And again, this person loses control of their earthly life willfully without being forced and they gain the eternal See, God is gracious, and He's loving, and He won't force Himself upon anybody because that's not how true love works. True love woos, and true love offers, and true love calls out, but true love doesn't force. True love doesn't make us robots. True love says, hey, here, I'd like to give this to you. Please, you know, be mine. Would you be my Valentine, as that's coming up here in a couple weeks here in America. And true love lets the other make the decision to say yes or no. And in God's case, many people say no, but he desires for us to say yes. He gave you your life, and it's up to you to do with as you want. He gave you your life, and he, cho- he, he lets you make the decision. You worship whom you will. Really, I hope God says it'll be me, but he doesn't force you that you would worship him. He says, live it to yourself or surrender it to Jesus Christ and start to worship him and let him in because you're broken and lost. That's really the decision. That's really the repentance decision. I want to ask everybody a question, a really hard, hard question. I've got some things to say. Does this repentance that I just described sound like you? The one that Peter just told these Jews that they must do in order to be saved and become right with God. And as a result of this repentance, right, this turning to Jesus Christ, this bowing yourself down to him, has this led to you really living your life for him? Not the other way around, mind you. Not, I'm going to live my life so that God accepts me. That's the opposite way around. That's a works-based salvation, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Has your true submitting in your heart to God caused real godly works to come from you or not? Why do I ask this? Many in our world have been deceived into thinking that salvation comes by some special, magical, one-time prayer because some preacher man said so, and then, then so led them in this prayer and declared them after they prayed this prayer, you are born again. Wow, what a deception. Why do I call it a deception? Because you won't find it in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, then it's not of God. And if it doesn't lead anyone to real, and it doesn't, I should say, lead anyone to the real saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Ed, you you got it all wrong. Romans 10, 9, 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, and that's all that Joel's saying, he's just saying, if you, because listen up, we got to read the whole verse. For Romans 10 says, That if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, notice the position that you're giving him with your mouth. You're making him the Lord, right? If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your where? Your heart. There's where repentance comes from. 
if you can if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is a this is where repentance comes from. The heart. Repentance doesn't come from your mouth or your brain. It comes from your heart man, your inner man. I need God. I, that's something you do way before you even say anything. It's something that changes inside first. You make it change inside first before you ever speak a word. So don't get confused. Repentance is of an inner, inner, inner man thing. What, where, how does the Bible say salvation comes? Well, back to this. When the Jews of Peter's day asked what could they do and they realized they were guilty of killing God's only begotten son, the savior of the world, when they realized that they were not right with God because of their filthy sins that separated them from God and they asked what they could do to be right with God, Peter told them, repent, surrender your life to Jesus Christ, which is a decision that comes from your inward man. Repent, guys, turn to God in your heart. Turn to God with, your, with all you have. Start to love Him. Turn to Him right now. And then repentance also talks about a life change. It brings life change is what we've been talking about. And speaking of life changes, then he told them to take an outward expression of their heart's desire to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and so receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or become born again. If you would consider yourself a Christian today, saved and on your way to spend eternity in heaven when you die, I would challenge you as to how the supposed salvation came to be in your life. Was it by some special magical one-time prayer that someone led you in and then you, you, they told you you were born again and that's what you just thought happened? I can tell you that if it was, I really have strong doubts about your true salvation and your truly being born again. One prayer to God doesn't save anyone. For nowhere in God's word do we read that this is what God wants you to do in order to be saved. Without repentance, the Bible says, surrender to Christ. Waving your white flag of surrender, etc. There is no salvation. And if you think that I'm just making this stuff up from one verse, because I'm big on that, can't just be from one. We got to have multiple, right? If God's really true on this, then we got to have more than one verse and God's got to speak about it often. Well, that's what we see. We're going to read about it a little bit. Acts 3.19. Peter says this, Paul, Peter says this, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. No salvation if sins are not blotted out, by the way, guys. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Perish means eternal fire and hell, but that all should come to repentance. Not a prayer. Jesus himself said, Matthew 9.13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Last one, Acts 13, 24, as the Jewish disciples realized that God was allowing Gentiles to have salvation also. Listen to what he says. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Wow. This is no joke. God's not talking about a one-time prayer. God's talking about a heart change. There's no eternal life without repentance. 
And this is not a magical prayer. It is a surrender of yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. And your life should change. And you should desire to do works fitting to your true surrendered life to Jesus Christ as your Lord. After true repentance, surrender to Jesus Christ and conversion, you should supernaturally have a desire for the things and ways of God. You should desire to learn about Him more. You should desire to follow His ways more. You should desire to read His Word and pray and talk to Him often. You, you, you shouldn't feel the same way when you sin. That's a huge thing about repentance. You shouldn't feel the same way when you sin. It, it should bother you when you sin now. When you sin, all of a sudden you do things, and all of a sudden you should, well, oh, oh, that hurts. Oh, when you use that foul word. Oh, oh, wait, oh, ow. Oh, when you watch that thing on TV. Oh, they use God's name in vain. Oh, I can't watch that anymore. Oh, when you start to get that drunk and then the next morning you wake up and you used to just feel bad physically, but now it's like, oh, man, what did I do? Oh, I got you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. And then all of a sudden you feel this remorse toward God. Oh, and then it leads you to, God, I'm so sorry. What did I do last night? I, oh, my goodness. And all these times that this happens, true repentance and a true born againness and a true salvation should be one where you stop doing those sins where you stop practicing those sins. That doesn't mean that you won't occasionally sin at some points in your life, but that true repentance and true salvation means that you're not going to live in those sins anymore because you just simply can't. Because God's changed you and you've become a new person. You can't talk like you used to. You can't drink alcohol like you used to. You can't watch pornography like you used to. You can't let TV be a, be a, make you a slave anymore. You can't do these things because you've decided to follow Jesus Christ. If you're truly repented and you're truly saved, Jesus Christ should be first in your life. And you should be a new person. You should begin to have a love for God and a desire to serve Him with your life. You should have a desire to be obedient to His words and and the new Holy Spirit living in your being. This makes you a new person in Christ, not just religious and hoping for your salvation when you die one day. You shall have an assurance of your salvation if you truly repent Does this describe you or did you just follow someone in a prayer one day some time ago with none of these changes I explained above and really you just still live the same as before practicing all the sins that everyone else around you does and just thinking that you're just okay because hey, I believe in Jesus. This is between you and God, of course. But please examine yourselves to see which person in lifestyle I described describes you. And if you find that you have not truly repented, you've not truly surrendered your life to Christ in your heart and changed in some of these ways I spoke of, then please, I beg you today, just like Peter did, those people of his day, repent. Turn to Christ today and be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. Come on, my fellow countrymen, what are you waiting for? Turn to Christ Jesus today, please, and be saved from your sins, for tomorrow may never come. Repent. It's in your hands. Don't perish. Take advantage of God's mercy today. Today is the day of salvation, and God is waiting for you. Don't keep Him. You may not get another chance at this. This may be God's last offer of salvation 
to you. You can be prideful and you can say, Oh, I've done that before. I know I'm saved. I, I prayed that And Pastor, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, read your Bibles. Read what God says. Read these things that I told you about intimately yourself. And pray and ask God, Have I really surrendered? Are you really my Lord? Have I really surrendered to you? Have I really bowed my life down to you and put you as the number one spot in my life? Ask God these things. Read his word. And I'm going to pray for you. Because many people are so prideful and they just think, I've got it. I'm saved. But when you line their lives up with scripture, you find that they don't live life, life, scripture. And it's not because they're not trying. It's because they don't have God's Holy Spirit within them to help them live the God live the life that God called them to live. So please examine yourselves and let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God. And I just thank you for this message. I thank you, Lord God, that Peter's message today to us or back then was as relevant to us today as it was back when the day when Peter taught it. And Lord, and I thank you that it'll be as relevant the day I die, whether that's 50 years from now or, or tomorrow or whatever, Lord, it'll be as relevant 100 years from now as it is today until you return, of course. And so, Lord, I thank you, Lord God, that it's still the way of salvation. I thank you, Lord God, that it's still your open way of salvation. Lord, you haven't hidden it. The devil's done a really good job of trying to hide it, Lord, but you've got it wide open if people will just read their Bibles. So please, God, turn people to you. Cause people to surrender. Bring them to Christ. Not just in a word, not just in a prayer, but, Lord, in their hearts. Cause them to turn to you, Lord. Show them that that's what you want. You want to be everything. You want to be Lord. You don't just want to be a prayer, Lord God. You want to be Lord. And that's what it takes for salvation, God. I pray, please, for everybody listening out there, Lord God, open their hearts so they can receive this, Lord God. You loved us and you gave us your only begotten Son. Lord, you desire us to respond the same way the Jews did at Peter's day. Please, God. Cut people to the heart. Let them be humble right now to be cut to the heart and win them for your kingdom. Let people be born again today. In Jesus Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen.